This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Pinchas. Here we are, the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg, and Parsha's Pinchas is a reactive Parsha in a certain sense. At least the very beginning of Parsha's Pinchas is evidently a reaction to what took place at the end of Parsha's Balak, which gives rise to perhaps the first important question we have to ask in terms of understanding the division of the Parshios according to our Mesora, and that is why Parshas Pinchas, in fact, begins where it does. We could have started Parshas Pinchas earlier, or we could have begun this week's Parsha a little bit later, and we might have given it a different name, right? So usually we're not necessarily bent on giving a certain name to a Parsha. Usually the Parsha is broken up wherever it is, and the first unique word of the Parsha is um, the title of the Parsha, and then perhaps there's deeper significance to that name. And maybe, just maybe, that can be the beginning of an answer to our question, but if in fact we were really bent on the name of the Parsha being Pinchas, there's an easy solution that can still maintain the organization. I'll give you one alternative option of how the Parshas could have been broken up, and this would not have to have been sacrificed. Right? At the very end of Parshas Balak, the Torah tells us that Vayar Pinchas, Pinchas saw all that was happening with the Bnei Yisrael's engagement with the Benos Moab and the Znus, and their embracing of Baal Peor, the Avodah And then Pinchas arrives on the scene, and that could have been the beginning of this week's Parsha. Or we could re- we could rewind a little bit further. Maybe we would have had to, if we had done this, we might have sacrificed the name Pinchas and maybe called the Parsha something else. But when when Bilam finally goes home after failing to to bless the Bnei Israel, then the Bnei Israel begin to engage with the Benos Moav. So that really that's where the narrative begins, right? So the the story of Pinchas very clearly begins well before Parshas Pinchas. So if we wanted to keep things uniform, the entire final story of Parsha's Balak should have really been the beginning of the Parsha, and that would have kept things in place. We would have had one story not broken up into two. Now, the other alternative is to take the entire story of Pinchas and leave it all at the very end of Balak. Now, we think of a couple reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. But then, the beginning of what this week's Parsha is, it could, um, you know, um, it could have begun either from the new census, right, which is a fair place to begin a Parsha. That's exactly how Bamidbar began. Bamidbar began with the first census of the Bnei Israel. Parsha's Pinchas could begin with the final census of the Bnei Israel. The organizational aspect would have been quite seamless, flawless. It would have been perfect. Right, so it's a little bit strange that the Chumash did it this way. So that's one question that we have to address. So really, there are two forms of the question, or I should say two of what we might argue are better alternatives to how the Parsha could have been broken up and where the Parsha could have started. It either should have started um, earlier in the story you know, um, after Bilam goes home, the beginning of the Bnei Israel's worship of Baal Peor, uh, that's where the story should have begun. That's where the Parsha, I should say, should have begun. Or the Parsha should have begun after Hashem um, rewards Pinchas and acknowledges Pinchas and ordains him a Kohen and gives him a bris shalom. That should have all been a part of the end of Parsha's Balak, a nice ending to Parsha's Balak. And then 
this parsha should have begun with the census of the Bnei Yisrael. So why, in fact, do we get Pinchas's story split into two parts? We have action and reaction. So why should that be? Because that's one question that we have to come back to. And part of the answer, as we are going to see, is it really has to do with what, in fact, the larger Parsha is about. It is about, um, in a certain sense, what we learn from Pinchas, but we're going to see a lot of what the Parsha contains is, is, you know, is really um, enveloped in this larger umbrella of, of what Pinchas represents. But in order to understand how that is, we're going to have to look at all the components of the Parsha, which we will do right now. And then after we do that, we'll try to understand what, in fact, the Parsha at large is about. Okay, so the first component of the Parsha out of seven that I have listed is Pinchas' promotion. He gets the Bris Shalom, the Bris Kahunas Olam. He, um, you know, we, um, the, Rashi and um, the Midrash reveal how, by technicality, even though Pinchas was of Kohanic descent, um, he was not going to be a Kohen because anybody who was um, um, not either Aaron or one of Aaron's sons at the time. So at the time, you know, if you, if you were a grandson of Aaron, you were not given Kahuna. You were just uh, Aaron and his sons were given Kahuna. Anybody that would be born to them afterwards would be a Kohen, but any grandchildren that were alive at the time would not have been given the role of Kohen. And then by doing what Pinchas did, he became a Kohen. Um, the, the, the connection between this, um, uh, this ordination of Pinchas as a Kohen has shades. We said this earlier in Muslim Minutes this, uh, this week, um, the, I think the first upload of the week, um, we were talking about Shavasar Batamas and Baal Pa'or. So this has shades of the story of the Cheta Egal, where Shevet Levi was ordained for the first time. So we have that connection. And that's, that's the first component of the parsha, Pinchas being ordained and rewarded. Fine. The second section is Hashem's command for the Bnei Israel to do war with Midian, to take vengeance against them. This actual war does not take place until Parshas Matos. So something to consider. Um, we understand the command to do war with Midian. What we do not um, fully understand, which we'll have to give some time to, is why Hashem does not command the Bnei Israel to take any vengeance against Moab. Right? Um, it was mostly the Moavi women who were involved. Right? So and there, were, there were apparently Midianite women involved too. Cosby, who was with Zimri, the man, the tribal leader from Shimon, who was killed by Pinchas. So Cosby was... Um, uh, Cosby was... A Midianite woman, woman, Midianite princess. So clearly Midian was involved, and Hashem clearly wants them to respond to Midian. We don't know at, right at this moment why Midian is um, is singled out to the exclusion of, of of Moab. So maybe we'll come back to that before we uh, address the larger questions. And then um, in section three, we have the final census, the, the counting of the Bnei Israel, the division of the, of the land, um, you know, um, the count of Levi, who would receive no land. So all that um, starts to be outlined here at, at Pinchas. And when we say the final census, we mean that at this point, 
with the exception of Moshe Rabbeinu, basically, um, I think actually not, not basically, but literally, there is no one else who's going to die. Everyone who's here is going to enter Eretz Yisrael, which is really exciting. So this is clearly the end of an era right now. It would have been a great place to start the Parsha once again. Um, not where we started, so we have to defend Vimasora as we have it. Okay, so that's section three, the final census. Section four, we have the request of the Benos Tzalafchad. Everybody who was counted in this census was someone who was going to be able to inherit land in Eretz Yisrael, but not the women. At least not until the Benos Tzalafchad, the righteous Benos Tzalafchad, they came forth, they told Moshe Rabbeinu in the most respectful way that they were... That, that, that they were not going to be entitled to any land, and it wasn't fair because their father, um, who died by no, um, no public act of rebellion, at least not against the authorities, right there, we, we spoke out of Machlokas back in Parsha Shalach, um, who was Tzalafchad, how did he die, was he one of the Ma'apilim, was he one of the, um, what was he, the Makoshesh Eitzim, um, whichever one it was, so he wasn't a part of the, Rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu, for example, Korach. Not just for example, but this is what they said. Um, this is what they said, or at least this is what, um, what the, the midrash brings down. So, the the point is that um, since he died, and they, they would not um, have a, they would not be able to inherit land for their father's sake. Right? They weren't asking for anything for themselves. They were asking for their father. Moshe Rabbeinu is not sure what to do, and he goes to Hashem, and Hashem uh, makes a special exception for how these righteous women can inherit land. Okay, fine. This is going to be revisited in Parshas Masse, so remember this story. Section 5, we have Hashem responding now to Moshe Rabbeinu, allowing him to see the land of the Eretz Yisrael. Rashi quotes the Midrash that after Moshe Rabbeinu was seeing Hashem making special exceptions to give people the rights to inherit land in Eretz Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu thought that maybe that would be his opening, because we know Hashem had abandoned from Eretz Yisrael. So Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, not so fast, you could take a look at the land, and um, from here you could see it, but that's about it. Then Moshe Rabbeinu turns around, section 6. Moshe Rabbeinu turns around to Hashem and, and, and it, with a certain level of, of azos and brazenness. The Pasuk says, Vaidaber Moshe el Hashem Lemor, the first and only reversal of the typical Pasuk, Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe Lemor, we have Vaidaber Moshe el Hashem Lemor, and Moshe Rabbeinu tells Hashem, you can't leave these people without a leader. I, I, I have the full understanding that I'm not going to be the one that's leading them. Do not lead them in without a leader. And so Hashem um, has Moshe Rabbeinu select Yehoshua to be the one to lead them. So Yehoshua becomes ordained as the new successor, or as the successor to Moshe Rabbeinu, the new leader of the Bnei Israel. Um, that's, so that's not effective yet, because Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't die yet, but um, it's, it's now decided. Finally, section 7, this is also is a certain, in a certain sense an elephant in the room in our Parsha. We have the entire calendar of Karbanos, from the daily Tamid offering to the weekly Shabbos Musaf offerings to the monthly Rosh Chodesh offerings and to all of the annual Yom Tov Musaf and all the Karbanos for Yom Tov. We get every single uh, kind of, of, of time-designated um, Karban, um, so in order, it's the daily carbon, the weekly carbon um, um, for Shabbos, the monthly carbon for Rosh Chodesh, and then all the Yom Tovim, starting from Pesach, then to Shavuos, then to the Yom Tovim, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Um, uh, so uh, yes, yeah, so Pesach, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and then Sokas and Shemini Atzeres in that 
order. Okay, and that's all the uh, the components of our parsha. So clearly, that's another one that another issue that really has to be addressed. It's not clear why at this point are we talking about the carbonos. This could have easily also been, I guess, the beginning of a new parsha. Um, but um, we have to explain um, with a, perhaps a little bit more difficulty why that section is in our parsha. Now, before we start addressing the larger question of why the parsha begins and closes where it does. So let's just um, give some quick attention to the question about um, how Hashem commanded the Bnei Israel to do war with Midian, who assisted Moab in seducing the Bnei Israel towards idolatry. But again, why not also have them do war with Moab? And who exactly was involved in this in us? Was it just Moab or also Midian? Why is only Moab emphasized the beginning of um, you know, of the story in Parsha's Balak, and then only Midian is given any attention at the end of all of this. So, there are a bunch of answers among them. Farshim Rashi cites three different Midrashim to talk about why Moab was spared. Um, and a couple of them could actually be connected. So, for example, Rashi talks about the need for, for Moab to be spared because of Rus, that Rus was going to come from them. Now, that alone is not a fair answer because... Why should that protect every Moab, you know, individual, every Moavi individual? That should only protect the the immediate line to Rus. Uh, maybe uh, it would have taken more miracles to uh, to isolate one family to save them. But it seems very strange. This shouldn't be a. I mean, maybe it is a schus for all of them. Um, but uh, but on its face, it's a hard answer to accept. Is another answer that they had schus tracing all the way back to Lot. Maybe the Lot Schos and the Rus Schos can be connected. But another Midrash, which, um, um, which focuses on how really um, how Midian is being particularly targeted because they mixed in, right? Moab and Midian were not actually friends, but they both found a common enemy in the Bnei Israel. And so uh, when, when you know, Moab was just minding their own business, Midian said, Midian said hey, let's do something about them. So for maybe Midian gets a special focus for mixing in. Now, why does that mean Moab gets spared? So we have to do a little bit more work. The Ramban talks about how Midian was the one that compelled Moab in the first place. Okay, so similar answer, Midian is mixing in. Malbin talks similarly about how Midian was more premeditated, whereas Moab was defensive. They were reactive. Right? The truth is that Hashem never intended um, um, for the Bnei Israel to do war with Moab. Um, and Rabbi Yitzchak Et Shalom actually has a very interesting shear that overlaps with the Sturban and the Malbim, giving it an honorary mention just for that reason. He talks about how um, Moab, you know, they, they, they owned their territory and Hashem had no intention of taking the land away from them, whereas Midian, uh, the Midianites he compares to Bedouins, who, you know, they, you know, they had land over here, land over there, and they just mixed in with people, and they, you know, they, they antagonized people, which is why Hashem responds to Midian, so Roros and Midian, you go antagonize them back. So Midian is really premeditated. The Al-Sheikh uh, focuses on the idea that Midian clearly was targeting even the tribal leaders. Moab was just going against the, you know, was trying to seduce the common, the common Israelite, Whereas Midian even went out, they sent their princesses after tribal leaders. The Netziv talks about how Moab, they, you know, they, they worked to get the Bnei Israel to do a Vodazara using, um, you know, like, for example, they had an, an idol called Kamosh. That was the Moavi god, the deity 
the false god, obviously. And they were they were working with Znos. It was really the Yitzhahara was for Znos. But Midian tried to actually draw the hearts um, through the philosophy of the worship of Avodah And in Itzif says that they were the ones that really introduced the Baal Pa'or. Um, now, what's a little bit somewhat challenging, and um, you have to look at the Nitziv inside and see if it works out, but it seems to be from historical, there's historical um, evidence that Moab um, and Balpa'or are associated with one another, not Midian and Balpa'or. But it could be Midian got, um, got Moab to introduce the Balpa'or philosophy, um, but we have to do a little bit of work. Was it Midian who introduced Balpa'or to the mix? Um, and, you know, and again, as opposed to just Znus, who was, um, who, um, were, but trying to actually, quote unquote, enlighten the Bnei Israel to serving the idol. So that's what um, that's what's offered by the Nitziv. And Rav Hirsch gives um, a very simple answer, which um, we, you know you can um, debate about. Was that once um, the you know w- once uh, everything stopped in the story. Um, um, once uh, Pinchas got up and did his, his heroic deed. So um, Rav Hirsch suggests that Moab backed off, but Midian didn't assist. And because Midian didn't assist, they continued to antagonize. So Hashem said, okay, if they're not backing off, we're going we're gonna to keep going and we're going to attack Midian. So those are some of the different answers that are suggested. Um, but this is one of those questions that has to be asked. Okay, so... Let's focus now on that that larger question that we began with, and that is the breakdown of our parsha, starting from midway into the Pinchas story, or we should say the reaction to the Pinchas story. So, if we look throughout the parsha, there seems to be one theme that pervades, and if you listened to the Muster minutes that was uploaded earlier today, so you would have heard a little bit about this, but that is the theme that we find that permeates Parshas Pinchas is the theme of legacies. Because, in fact, Parshas Pinchas, by and large, is a reactionary Parsha, which focuses on the fruits of people's labor. It focuses on the rewards for heroism among different people of the Bnei Israel. Also, we find a little bit about legacies that were lost along the way. But this is what this is what we find in Parshas Pinchas, because it's not just with Pinchas as an individual, but we're going to see this comes up with other individuals as well. And if that's the case, it could be our Masora is trying to highlight this line of demarcation between the actions that we do, whether for the sake of Ratzon Hashem, whether not for the sake of Ratzon Hashem, whether they're in line with Ratzon Hashem, whether they are not in line with Ratzon Hashem, whatever act we does, whatever act we do or whatever act an individual does, there we go, grammatically safe. Whatever we do, there's going to be a reaction, and we have to, sometimes, um, some, sometimes we have to consider those reactions, but sometimes we also have to realize that there's going to be a different chapter. There's going to be maybe a time lapse between the heroic act that we do and the, the grand reaction that's going to follow. Meaning, when Pinchas engaged in the very, we'll call it, controversial act that he did, the, the making of the waves by killing Zimri, when all the Bnei Israel were doing what they were doing, and they were all living in harmony until Pinchas came along and, quote-unquote, disturbed the peace. So Pinchas might not have known 
that he was going to be lauded for his act. He likely did not know what was going to be. He didn't know there was going to be a Parshas Pinchas where he's rewarded with kahuna and a bris shalom. But what he did know was what he was watching was not going to, you know, was, was not the Ratzon Hashem being upheld. What he saw was something intolerable. And he was a kanoi, he was a zealot for the Ratzon Hashem. And again, did he know that in this, in this lifetime he was going to be able to be rewarded? No. And in all likelihood, he, he would have been denounced by everyone. And in fact, he was. Until Hashem had Moshe Rabbeinu publicize the fact that Pinchas had done the absolutely right thing. And we kind of get to feel this, this, through this gap between the Parshas, we get to feel this tension, this, this, uh, this dramatic sense almost of not knowing, not being able to see the fruits of our labor at the moment that we act. Pinchas does something, he, he, he makes a loud noise, and it's a loud and unpleasant noise, much like the shattering of the luchos, at the scene of the Chet Egel, And guess what? We have to sit on it for a while. And we have, to, we, you know, we have the opportunity to point fingers at Pinchas and say, look what you've done. And then Hashem says in this week's Parsha, yes, look what you've done. You've not only, you've not only uh, stood up and were zealous for my sake, but you actually restored the peace for the Bnei Israel, And so the, 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 this is the legacy of Pinchas. In this week's Parsha, people are coming to collect reward in this world, to have an eternal legacy to be blessed. This is, so Parsha's Pinchas is a Parsha of evaluation. It's an eva- it's evaluation and collection of your dues. So we have the example of Pinchas. In most of minutes earlier this week, or I, again, sorry, it wasn't. It was earlier today. Actually, we spoke about the model of Yehoshua. Right, this difference between Pinchas, who acted in one moment's time and forged a legacy for the rest of his life, and maybe even in his afterlife as well, whereas Yehoshua did not engage in one single action that forged his legacy forever. But it was about what he did every single day. Lo yamush mitocha ohel. That Yehoshua never moved himself, he never withdrew himself from the tent of Moshe Rabbeinu to thirstily learn and, and, and um, to thirstily drink from Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah. Something that everyone else had access to, but Yehoshua just wanted it more than anyone else. The humility to be able to say that I need more from my Rebbe. So Yehoshua gets to collect the fruits of the garden that he guarded. This is how the Midrash portrays it, right? Moshe Rabbeinu thinks, what about my children? Hashem says, how about, you know, how about the one that was guarding the fruits the entire time? Let him eat from the fruits. And that's Yoshua. You look through the census, you'll find interesting gaps, holes in the census, individuals that seem to belong there, but they're not there. The census records names of people that died and says, oh yeah, this person died. All right, so when it records the, the uh, Shevet Levi, it says, oh yeah, Nadav and Avihu, they died earlier. When it records Yehuda's family, it says, oh yeah, and Aaron, Onan, they, they died back in Canaan. 
Uh, then it talks about the sons of of, of Ruvain. Oh yeah, and Dustin and Aviram, they died with Korach and then Korach's assembly. And it's like, why are you giving the names of people that aren't here? I, I, I'm pretty sure the point of a census is to count who is there. But this is the reversal of that concept of legacies. Because these are all individuals. All these individuals that died, these were all people that sought their own legacy. Aaron Onan, they wanted for, you know, they, they each acted just for themselves and their own legacy. Onan, quite literally, did not want to uphold the legacy of his brother. Dustin and Aviram, clearly they were in it for themselves to try to create a legacy by challenging Moshe Rabbeinu's legacy. Nadav and Avihu, they were all about, you know, when is the old generation going to move out so that the new generation can stand up and forge their legacy? And they were all lost. They were lost because they were thinking about their legacy alone and not about Ratzon Hashem. Not what Yehoshua was thinking about. Not what Pinchas was thinking about, and not what the Benos Tzalafchad were thinking about. The Benos Tzalafchad were thinking not about their own legacy, but the legacy of someone else, their father. And, and, and trying to uphold Ratzon Hashem by going to Moshe Rabbeinu and finding out what can be done within the realm of Ratzon Hashem to make things right for our father. So this is the Parsha of collecting for this, you know, collecting your eternal legacy that was forged by just doing what was Ratzon Hashem. It's an entirely different parsha from the story of what the Bnei Shah were doing once upon a time with the Benos Moav and Balpaor. Because now, once we're at the end of the line, even in this world, we're finding people being dished out rewards. Pinchas is coming to, con- to collect. The Benos Tzlevchad are coming to collect. Yeshua is coming to collect. And everybody that made it this far is coming to collect something. So now we get to the Karbanos. So this one's a little bit more difficult. What are the Karbanas doing in this Parsha? So there are answers suggested among the Mepharshim. Rashi points to a Midrash, um, and Malbim also points to a Midrash. The one that Rashi points to is the Karbanas come right off the story of Moshe Rabbeinu telling Hashem, we need a leader for the Bnei Israel. Don't leave them without a, don't leave them as a flock without a shepherd. So Hashem says, okay, you know, give them, give them Yehoshua to be the leader. And the Midrash says that um, Hashem turns out, Vaidabar Hashem Moshe Lemur, you know, while you're commanding me about my people, let me command your people about me. Meaning, you know, don't ask me what I can do for them, but ask them what they can do for me. And in that vein, Hashem says, Karbanos, I want you to tell them these are the things that they owe me. So Hashem essentially says, what do I owe them? You're telling me, Moshe, I owe them a leader. I owe them a guide. Okay, I'll give them that. Well, here's what they owe me. And um, what, what's the whole point? Is, is there a connection? Because you know, Hashem could have told Moshe Rabbeinu anything at this point. Any mitzvah, you know, would have been something that the Bnei Israel owe Hashem. So what's the point? And it could be the Karbanos, in a certain sense, are, you know, the, the guide to the relationship with Hashem. The, the karbanos are the way that Hashem, in a sense, can be led back to us. It's kind of like uh, the way uh, my Rebbe of Ari Marcus, uh, my Shiva from Rashi, the way he explains the difference between Messias Yisharim and Derech Hashem, both authored by the Ramchal, both Sifrei Musar in a certain sense, with some philosophy. Messias Yisharim is the guide to get to Hashem. Derech Hashem is the way to understand Hashem, to get, to get Hashem back to us. It's Hashem's way to us. 
So in a certain sense, the Bnei Israel having a leader, that's their way towards Hashem. And the Karbanos, in a sense, it allows Hashem to engage with us. When, or you can, the truth is you might even reverse these two, right? Because the Yoshua being the Navi for the people, and maybe, maybe this, is, this is more, you know, it's it pro- probably the reverse of the Mashal that I'm giving is probably more appropriate. That Yoshua is the Navi, he's the mouthpiece through which Hashem will speak to the Bnei Israel. Yoshua is the way that Hashem connects to the people. Through the Navi. Karbanos are going to be the way that the people will connect to Hashem. That's their pathway to Hashem. So Hashem essentially tells Moshe Rabbeinu, okay, you know, you're, you're, commanding, you're commanding me about what I should do for my people so that I should be able to connect to them. Well, why don't you focus now on how they can connect to me? Through how, so, so Hashem speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu specifically about the Karbonos, which is the way to get to Hashem. The Malbim points at a different connection, um, which relates to Moshe Rabbeinu's death. The Malbim says, based on a Medrash, that if not for the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu died before the Bnei Israel got into Eretz Israel, if Moshe Rabbeinu had lived and they would have gone into Eretz Israel, the, the, the Yetzirah for Avodah Zarah would have been immediately eradicated. But because Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't join them going into the land, the Yetzirah was still there, and therefore they needed Karbonos to counteract that Yetzirah. Their Mban focuses on a completely different answer. He says that, um, that the Karbonos for the entire year these were all important for their entry into Eretz Yisrael, which, you know, the Karbanos were soon going to be contingent on all of them. And Rashi says something similar about how these Karbanos are going to be important in Lodoros, something that we talked about a different Ramban, and we mentioned this Ramban in multiple Parsha Panoramas, um, and that is how the Ramban understands Sefer Bamidbar at large to be a uh, complementary or really supplementary maybe both, to um, a, a Sefer, to Sefer Vayikra. So in a similar vein to the way Shemos is Barashas part two, so Bamidbar in a certain sense is Vayikra part two. So you find a lot of Karbanos and ritualistic laws that seemingly belong in Vayikra, and they'll be in Bamidbar too. We, did, we, we used the Sermon to support, um, as a support to explain why Para Aduma is in Bamidbar and not in Vayikra, why the Karbanos of the Nazir and the Sota are here and not there, why the Karbanos in response to Vodazara are in Shalach and not somewhere in Vayikra, and why the Menachos and the Nesachim are, are in Shalach and not in, in Vayikra. So you can use this um, as another um, proof to that, but it doesn't explain why the, these Karbanos should be here. But if you say this has something to, to do with the preparation of going to Eretz Yisrael, so then that can sort of serve as an answer. Um, the Rav, Her- um, Rav Hirsch has an explanation that talks about how, similar to the Malbim, similar to with some of the ideas that we quoted earlier, um, that at the end of the journey of the Bnei Yisrael, um, in the Midbar, the whole journey is to get to Hashem's promised land, and now we have to focus on forging our relationship with Hashem that happens through Karbanos. The Arachayim gives an answer, he gives a couple of answers, we'll focus on, on one of them, he mentions the connection apparently to Yehoshua. Um, it's, it's a hard answer to understand, but he says that even though Yehoshua um, uh, was now the new leader, but still, um, e- even though Yehoshua was going to be the leader, when it comes to Karbanos, this is almost like a counter-response. 
Um, Yehoshua couldn't just get up one day and offer his own carbon tamid. The carbon tamid comes from the tzibor. So while Moshe Rabbeinu um, and Hashem are having a conversation about the importance of a leader of Klal Yisrael, of the individual leader, now we're learning about the importance of the tzibor at large. So, um, you know, so what, we're, what we're saying now is that, you know, don't think it's just about the individual leader, right? This was the, one of the mistakes of, um, at the, with the Chet HaEgel, right? The Bnei Israel they thought, oh, look, Moshe's gone, now we're doomed, now we need to create a new Moshe Rabbeinu. That's wrong. Karbonos are the response, right? Karbonos are the response, not, not creating a new Moshe Rabbeinu, but, but using Karbonos to serve Hashem. The medium to serve Hashem is Karbanos, not Avodazar, not, not creating new individual leaders. So Yehoshua was going to replace Moshe Rabbeinu, but he was not going to replace Avodaz Hashem. Right? And this is symbolized by the fact that the Karbanos, uh, the Karbant Hamid, for every single day, that was offered by funds from the Tzibor. That was not something that Yehoshua would do on his own. So that's, that's one answer just to take us all the way through now. And that basically would take us to the Parsha, but I want to offer one more suggestion that I think is important, which connects back to the entire discussion that we've had so far. And that is the idea, which we've been speaking about up until now, the idea of legacies in our Parsha and how they are forged. We've talked about different models of legacies, people who were looking out for the, for the betterment of other people, for example, people who were doing what they were supposed to do, whether it was one moment in time, right? There's some people that can acquire their eternality in one single moment in time. And some, some people it takes years and years and years. You have Pinchas clawing. Sorry, you have Pinchas acting. One sacrificial moment in one, you know, in, in, in history. And he creates history. Whereas Yehoshua spends a lifetime of just earnest and sincere following of, of Moshe Rabbeinu, and that does it, right? It, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, what we mentioned the Muslims, it wasn't just, you know, what he did at the Chet Hamaragalim, because Kalev also acted there. Kalev was even more of a front runner in that story, and yet Yehoshua somehow surpassed him because of his connection to Moshe Rabbeinu. But what does this have to do with the Karbanos? So the Karbanos, they highlight a couple of different things how there's a carbon that's offered every single day, and yet there's a carbon that's only offered weekly, and then one that's only offered monthly, and some carbonos that are only offered once a year. And what is the common denominator of all the carbonos? Reach nichoach Hashem. They are a pleasing fragrance and aroma to Hashem, which Rashi, based on the Midrash, explains, what does that mean? That I communicated my Ratzon and you followed through. That smells nice to Hashem. I don't care if it's something that you do every single day. The carbon tamid. Or if it's a carbon that you only offer once a year. On Yom Kippur. On Pesach. On Shemini Atzeres. Whatever it is. It's a reach nichoach Hashem. Every single day like Yehoshua. One moment in time, like Pinchas, the Reach Nichoach Hashem comes from someone who is looking out to serve Hashem, to do whatever it is the Ratzon Hashem is, and that's what legacies are ultimately made of. And then, when we get over to Parshas Matos, 
So now we're going to see what the next chapter looks like and what this has to do with anything. Because we've come a long way in Parsha Panorama, trying to understand what our goal is. We've, understand, we've understood that we are Hashem's chosen nation, which means a lot of responsibilities. We're going to be the conduit through which the entire world is blessed, right? To, to receive uh, the ultimate good and to give that entire ultimate good to the rest of humanity. And that happens when B'nai Israel understands who they are. And in Parshas Matos and Mase, which is a double Parsha, so we're going to see exactly how that plays out. Because right now, we are winding down towards the end of the Sefer, which means we're going to have to reevaluate what was Sefer B'midbar really about, what did Bamidbar represent in the panoramic view of the Torah at large for what we know the goal of creation itself to be. And when we do, as Ras Hashem, we will be able to segue into the next Sefer and understand the unique role. But until then, thank you for joining us here at the database. Have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos and enjoy Parshas Pinchas.